0: Morning church Good morning. So if you have um, been here um, haven't been here in a while or some time, I'm going to get um, the slide up, hopefully come up. There we go. Oh, we're not there yet. Um, so we um, have been going through our new values of the church, um, and last week. Pastor Mark preached a very powerful sermon on the biblical roots um, of multi-ethnic, using the story of King Josiah. Um, So if you guys haven't had a chance um, to listen to that, I really want to encourage you to do that. Um, Also, it'll help my sermon make more sense. So um, he used King Josiah, but he also uh, used the broader overview of the whole Bible, of, of God's heart. Uh, for every nation, every tongue, every tribe to be represented in the kingdom of God. He gave also the historical roots of white supremacy here in our state of Oregon. He talked about the doctrine of discovery, um, and he talked about responses of white fragility. That was a lot in that sermon. Um, He also happened to mention that I would be preaching and pretty much giving all the solutions to all of racism today. (laughs) So set your expectations low, because that's not going to (laughs) happen. I don't know everything about racism or how to dismantle it. Um, I am on the journey with you all. But today, we're going to look at some practical foundations um, and first steps on this very long journey that we'll be on together um, probably for the rest of our lives. the hope in the heart is that we would reflect God, um, this diverse, multi-ethnic, anti-racist kingdom of God. So I'm going to (laughs) pray, because this is just a lot. God, this is far beyond me. is far beyond us. Um, and so God, we ask for your spirit to come, to mold us, to make us clay, to soften us, to knead us, um, so that we could be moldable into what you desire for us to become. So would you soften hearts and open minds? Would you take um, the messy words of my mind and heart and make them acceptable and pleasing in your sight. May you be glorified and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So tomorrow is Indigenous People's Day, um, formerly known as Columbus Day. And this is um, a little excerpt that uh, I used to read every year at chapel when I was at Warner from, the, um, from Common Prayer In 1492, the indigenous peoples of the Americas discovered Christopher Columbus. In the book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, James Loden points out that Columbus read this to the Native Americans when he met them. I implore you to recognize the church as a lady and in the name of the pope, take the king as lord in this land and obey his mandates. And if you do not do it, I tell you with the help of God, I will enter powerfully against you all. I will make every way, everywhere that I can And I will subject you to the yoke and obedience to the church and to his majesty. I will take your women and children and make them slaves. The deaths and injury that you receive from here on out will be only your fault and not of that of his majesty nor the gentlemen that accompany me. When someone begins to share about our community's unjust and evil racist history like that, Or like what Pastor Mark kind of unpacked last week. What are the kinds of responses that come up? What are the responses that you've had or maybe you've heard from other people? It could be, man, I know racism is bad and I don't know what to do to make it better. Or I feel stuck and it feels so frustrating and I feel so guilty because I want to do something and I don't know how so then I don't and then it just kind of comes out in weird ways. I've never enslaved or colonized anyone. This ain't my problem. My ancestors didn't even have slaves. This isn't my responsibility. You're talking about something in the past. This doesn't impact my personal life. Why should I care? This is so unbiblical, too political. I'm not racist. I'm a good person. What are our reactions that come out? Are we defensive, or are we curious? Do we give a dismissive eye roll, or do we offer empathetic compassion? Do we deny what someone just shared about their experience or their story, or do we feel outraged and walk with them in solidarity? What comes up, and what is our posture towards God and other people? Um, There's a little video clip I'm going to show of Robin, um, we might have to go back, Uh, Robin D'Angelo, who is the sociological sociological researcher, PhD, on white fragility. Um, She's got lots of short, great little um, clips, but this is one in particular. Particular we're gonna watch
1: ways is to be raised to be functionally illiterate on the topic of race I am white uh, and part of being white is that I was not raised to see myself in racial terms I mean I understood that somebody had race but not really me to be white is to see oneself outside of race to see oneself as a unique special individual exempt from the forces of socialization I'll never forget a moment of standing beside a black man leading a workshop on race, and a white woman said to him, I don't see color. He said, well then how are you going to see racism? Because I am black. I do think you know that and I have a different experience than you do and you're not going to be able to understand that and you're not going to be able to support the parts of that experience that are really painful and problematic if you refuse to acknowledge my reality. I don't see color as really a way of saying I refuse to acknowledge your reality. What's important about that narrative is it reveals what the person thinks racism is. So if the person is using proximity, fondness across race as evidence of a lack of racism, in order for that to be good evidence, a racist must not be able to do that so that rests on an understanding that a racist cannot tolerate proximity to people of color and I'm hoping that we can see that's pretty absurd because trust me even avowed racists racist can tolerate being around people of color and often are You cannot talk about any other issue without talking about how race informs that issue. And when someone says it's about class, that tends to function as a way to get race off the table. First of all, we're already divided by race. Uh, And focusing on race is not what did it. I would say not focusing on race, refusing to grapple with how race shapes virtually everything is what keeps us divided. And that is a very white narrative. All of those narratives function to get race off the table, close the exploration, Exempt the person from any further engagement and protect the racial hierarchy and the white position with it, which is an unequal hierarchy. The challenge I want to offer my fellow white people is changing the question from if to how. So, dominant culture asks, if I'm racist. And I want to change that question to, How have I been shaped by the forces of racism? How is racism manifesting in my life? Because it circulates 24-7, 365, none of us can be and none of us were exempt from its forces. And this is where individualism can come in. I have a particular story, but that story didn't exempt me. And so I can ask myself, how did all the things I see as unique about me set me up into the overall racist structure? Because it did.
0: Well, that's fun. <laughs> um, Pastor Brian's in Disneyland. Um, I get to preach about dismantling racism. So um, when I when I see this, I mean, this is just kind of like the beginning of kind of a, a lot of long conversations, and um, and I, I think that. Uh, where I kind of went this week is I couldn't stop thinking about King Josiah. Um, I, and I wanted to go into a little deeper look at King Josiah today. Um, you, did you guys think about King Josiah this week like I did? I, I, I thought, man, when he found these, um, these scrolls that were in the temple, uh, when uh, those five first books of Moses was found, uh, he had such a profound reaction did you guys wonder like, well what happened next? So he read it, he found it, like what happened? King Josiah was around 16 when the scroll was read to him, and this was his response. And put it in contrary to the video we just saw. He tore his clothes. And then he said this to the priests and to the leaders, 2nd Kings 22. Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. So just stop for a moment, for me, it's not just personally about him. But it's also communal. There's a sense of legacy that he's thinking about. What what is this going to be for my whole community? What's this going to be for all of my descendants? What's this going to be for the legacy that's left behind? It's not this individualistic response. It's a communal response. And he says, for the great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book to do according to all that was written concerning us. So he recognizes that his ancestors did not obey the words of this book and now they're experiencing the consequences of their ancestors. Uh Uh-oh, there it is. There's this sense of of legacy, of ancestors and descendants. So Josiah took responsibility for what his ancestors did, and he responded in a way to make things right before God. He had the fear of God in his heart, and he had the word of God in his mind. And God's word was so clear to worship God alone, to don't make idols, to love your neighbor of yourself, and to specifically treat the triad, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant with greater dignity and care, both personally and in systems. He even said in the word to work the field for six days and then leave one day so that the triad, the widow, the orphan, and the Foreigner can come and, and have food to eat for their bellies. On every 50th year of Jubilee, the land was going to be returned back to the people who originally had it. All the slaves were going to be free and all the debt was going to be forgiven. Amen? God is a just and good and righteous and loving God. He created these systems in Scripture. And they were never practiced. Jubilee was never practiced. And and can you imagine King Josiah in this old-time religion of all these Asherah poles and idol worship that he's like, oh my goodness, as this is being read to him, it doesn't have to be this way. Josiah doesn't get defensive. He doesn't deny the reality that they were disobedient. Josiah doesn't begin to blame his father and and all the ancestors and say, well, they did that and it's not my problem. He didn't blame the priest for reading it, but he responds with humility and lament. So then the appointed crew consults with the prophetess, Hulda. Yes, this is a prophetess. She is a religious woman leader in the Old Testament. She prophesies that God will bring disaster on this place, on all the people, because they've abandoned God and worshipped other gods. And God says, I am really angry. But then the prophetess tells King Josiah, but for you, Because your heart was penitent, your heart was remorseful, was sad, was humble, contrite, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when I spoke, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against all its inhabitants, and that they should become a desolation and a curse, and because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and shalom. Your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring on this place. And then they took that message back to the king. There is this humble lament from King Josiah. We don't see this long list of defensiveness or fragility. He doesn't say, hey, but I marched in that protest when I was young. I have a friend who worships God alone. I also read a book about idol worship, and I know why it is wrong. Josiah doesn't say, whew, good thing God heard my lament. (laughs) I'm safe, I'm good. No problem anymore let's just keep on going. Josiah sees the Ashura poles. Josiah can' not see the injustice cannot see that in the society, in the world, and the policies, and the people that he hears that people are saying colonize them, board them, enslave them, exclude them, intern them, arrest them, sentence them, deport them, detain them, separate them, shoot them, crucify them, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Josiah does. He gathers around with the black mamas when they hear that their baby boy has been shot, when they hear that there is no justice in the court system, and he weeps, and he tears his clothes and weeps. Josiah doesn't just feel sad or says, well, I'm just going to try to be nicer. Josiah Josiah then gathers the elders, and he goes to the house of the Lord with all the people, the priests, the prophets. The scripture says the greatest and the smallest, and they read the scroll, the word of God that they had found. That's that sense of, I don't know it all, (laughs) but we need to do our work. To understand what God's Word says. We need to understand we don't have the same collective history. We're not coming from the same foundations and backgrounds. We need to have a collective memory of what we're talking about. We have a collective memory not the books that were written by the old-time religion current system. Not the institutionalized history books written by white people to tell of a white perspective of a Columbus who discovered America, but the stories that explain how the doctrine of discovery gave white Christian Europeans a policy to discover land that had already been occupied and settled on. Collective memory. Collective memory is memory activism. It's how we dismantle the unjust system of what we've been told and we're operating under. He goes back to the ancient scrolls, to the true history, the real history. He shares it with all the people so that they all collectively have the same foundations in memory of what happened. Oh, this is... Um Trigger warning. I'm going to show a picture of lynching. So if if you're sensitive or you have little kids, close your eyes. Um, This is a collective memory moment. Is that this is a picture, a famous picture of a lynching that after church, white people would gather to take pictures of them watching? Um, It was their chilling and grilling, it was their coffee hour to go see people being lynched. And people would take pictures and send postcards to other people to tell them, hey, you missed out. We need to have a collective memory of what happened. 20,000 people was recorded from a, after a church service came to go watch. There are things that we're doing in our society. Um, The Equal Justice Initiative um, put together a a lynching museum. Um, And this is, you know, a lot of the tombs of each of the counties and then the names of the people um, who were lynched in those counties. They even went to each ground and took the the ashes, the the cremation of the grounds of each person um, so that we have this collective memory that were coming from the same stories and spaces. And then the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, keeping God's promises, keeping God's decrees, keeping God's statues with all of his heart and all of his soul and to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in the covenant. Amen? Josiah doesn't just read God's word and makes a commitment to listen to it for his personal relationship with God. He makes a covenant with God and others to perform the words, to live it out, so that the world would become and reflect and look more just like Jesus is. They didn't know his name was Jesus, but I'm saying that right now. I will take the word of the Lord and I will use my position and power to do what is right in the eyes of God. There is this lament that is the heart to follow God, and then there is also the education, the, um, the, the loving God with your mind, that, that collective memory, the reading the scripture, the reading the history, the full history of God And then it is this perform the words, the proactive piece, the action piece. So in the next chapter, 2 Kings 23, if you guys want to look that up sometime, I'm going to summarize what happened. It's pretty long. Here it is. Things got real serious. That's it. Over 10 years, Josiah wasn't just a non idol worshiper, he was an anti idol worshiper. Josiah didn't get defensive, Josiah dismantled. He dismantled the systems that were against God's word, and he told them to worship God alone and love their neighbors as themselves. Here's the summary vessels of Baal burned, idolized priests gone, image of Asherah burned, beat to dust, houses of the male temple prostitute broken down, gates of the entrances of the city broken down, and then verse 10, he defiled Topheth so that no one can make a son or daughter pass through fire as an offering to Molech. Do you guys catch that? that there was child sacrifices happening, the injustice of what was happening at that time. Black men are 21 times more likely to be shot by an officer than their white peers. 21 times. And as I did research on the ages of black men and women who've recently been shot in the last few years, by police officers. The majority are under the age of 30. So I want to take a moment to do some collective memory for us. I'm wearing Andre Henry's shirt, It Doesn't Have to Be This Way, who's an African-American Christian author and activist who talks a lot about these things. Twelve-year-old Tamir Rice was holding a toy gun when he was shot. Stefan Clark, 22, was in his backyard. 32-year-old Falando Castile, whose name is still on my office door, was an elementary school cafeteria worker, was pulled over for a routine traffic stop with his 4-year-old in the back seat of the car when he was shot. 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was wearing a hoodie to go get a pack of Skittles when he was shot. Eric Garner was 44. He was a father of six children. He was breaking up a fight. When he gets held down by officers and he says 11 times, I can't breathe. 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 The man who's standing there is from Portland. This is Aaron Campbell. He was 25. He's there watching his brother pass away in the hospital. In 2019, he was, the police were called because he had a suicide alert for mental health because he had just watched his brother die. And they shot him in the back with his hands up. 26 year old Botham Jean, a worship leader at a church my friends in Dallas know. He worked at Price Waterhouse Cooper. Doesn't get more successful than that in that world. He was eating ice cream in his own apartment when an off duty cop thought she had the wrong apartment and shot him. And yesterday, Atatiana Jefferson, 28, was in her home. It was 2 in the morning. Her door was open. I don't know. It's hot in Texas. Maybe she's getting some cold air in or some mosquitoes. I don't know. A concerned neighbor called a non-emergency hotline, worried about his neighbor, because her door was left open. The body cams on the officers recorded them saying, put your hands up and show me your hands, four seconds before they shot her to death. Josiah saw the injustice, he lamented, he gained a collective memory of what was actually happening, but he did something. The horses of the kings dedicated the sun were gone, the chariots of the sun burned, the altars of the roof were pulled down and broken into pieces, the high places that Solomon built with idolatrous skulls were defiled and He broke the pillars in pieces. He cut down the sacred poles. He covered the sites with human bones. I don't understand all that. The altar, the high places, the sacred poles pulled down, burned, crushed to dust, shrines at Samaria removed, and then he went back to Jerusalem. Wow. This wasn't just his individualistic personal relationship with God response. It was this faith that he had in God, a love for God, and God's word that he cared about the whole picture and the whole community and the whole system, and he cared for the descendants to come of what was to be for the people. Kind of a Girl Scout saying, are we going to leave the place better than we found it? It wasn't just that he wept and lamented and felt bad or felt guilty, but he proactively did something tangible to break down the system, And this is what scripture says, that before him there was no king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all of his soul, and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did anyone arise after him like him. 2 Chronicles 34, 2 says, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And one of my favorite passages in Jeremiah, oh, I didn't write all that down. So he's talking to, um, the prophet is talking to Josiah's son who actually um, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he says this, hey, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Don't you have enough stuff? Did, your, did not your father have food and drink? And then this is what he said. King Josiah did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, so all went well. And catch this, church. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. This is deeply connected to our relationship with God, deeply connected to our discipleship, deeply connected to the fullness of a gospel that is restoring all things that are broken back to what God originally intended it to be. But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on what is for you, on shedding innocent blood and on oppression and extortion. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> you're like, wow, what? Wow, what a downer. So, so the question for us today, church, um, I don't want to leave us there. I, I want us to think of what are the practical, tangible things that we can do. Because I think what happens is that we feel so guilty, we feel so stuck, we see the bottom jeans, we see all of these things, and we feel paralyzed, um, unable to do things. So what can we take away to be more like King Josiah, to be anti-racist, to dismantle the shrines and the objects and the systems that uphold a white supremacy and keeps us from experiencing the fullness of God's many-colored kingdom where every tribe and every nation and every tongue can fully come and belong and worship Jesus? Amen? That's some good stuff. We need to have a common memory So we need to have shared definitions. When we use these words, I don't know necessarily if we're all using the same words, right? Um, So when we talk about the word... Which am I starting? I deleted a lot of stuff. Okay, reconciliation. So let me start actually with racism. Um, The initial reaction easily can be, man, racism means that all white people are bad. Um, Let me start there and say that is not what racism means, that all white people are bad. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's um, that scriptural um, or God. Um, what, what it means is that racism um, is, is against, or no, is for white supremacy. Um, white people are not bad, but white supremacy, yeah, that ain't good, that's not, that's not good. Um, And so I want to make sure that we're using kind of that framework for people to know that that's what we're saying. I fell in love with a white man. He's pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> so, but, but one book I've been reading recently is from um, Doc- Dr. Uh, Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, and she wrote a book called I Bring the Voices of My People, A Womanist View of Christian Racial Reconciliation. And that word womanist is particularly um, from black women perspective. Um, and she breaks it down, and she kind of breaks down like what's been wrong with all of the Christian racial reconciliation movements over the last decades or so, um, which we don't have time to. But you could read the book. Um, but she says this: she defines racial reconciliation as this. It is part of God's ongoing and eschatological—that's a fancy word of saying um, the future um, mission—to restore wholeness, and peace to a world broken by systemic injustice. Racial reconciliation focus focuses its efforts upon dismantling white supremacy, the systemic evil that denies and distorts the image of God inherently in all human beings based on the heretical belief that white aesthetics, values, and cultural norms bear the fullest representation for the Imago day. White supremacy thus maintains that white people are superior to all other peoples, and it orders creation, identities, relationships, and social structures in a way in support this distortion and denial. That's what we're talking about when we say racial reconciliation. Um, and, And she goes on to say that genuine reconciliation requires a certain kind of speech, It it requests speech that exposes, rather conceals, the powers at work within and behind the systems of oppression. It requires the risky utterances that lay bare the sin of oppression that force us to gaze at the raw, oozing wounds. It requires some confrontational truth-telling, which is very uncomfortable for me, just to let you know. Um, But in order for us to actually move towards becoming anti-racist. We can't do it without naming what is racist. Um, and so there's, um, we didn't do the video, but uh, Dr. Robin DeAngelo deconstructs this word racist, and I think this is really important. So if you're asleep, wake up, because this is really good. Um, so she says that what we've been told what a racist is, is that it is an individual, right? Um, it's, a, it's not a system. It's just one person. It's an individual. Two, we've been told that it is always conscious. If you do something racist, it's always like you are conscientiously doing it. You're doing it intentionally um, to people that are different from you. And the third is that we've been taught that racism um, is intentional. So individual, conscience, and intentional. So what that means is that anything that is subconscious, um, that is unconscious, that is um, an implicit bias, any of those things don't count. Um, and if you say it's an individual who's consciously doing really mean things, um, then what you have just said is that being racist means I am a morally bad person. So then there is just the good and bad binary. It's only one or the other. And so e- The reality is, that she says, is that most actions are unconscious, um, and we'll do anything that we can to defend our moral character rather than looking at our internal biases um, or being able to see the systems that we benefit from. It makes it very difficult, she says, to talk about racism with white people. Um, It argues also that the focus needs to, she she argues that the focus needs to be not on On that, on our on our own um, guilt of just what makes us feel bad, but rather it should be moved towards that how. So, what are we doing to be productive about it? She goes on to talk about, and um, there's a number of um, there's a book called How to Become an Anti-Racist. It's from an institute at um, American University in D.C. And he talks about it's easy for us to say, I am not a racist or I am non-racist, right? Um, but the, it's not very helpful for changing the whole system by just saying, well, I'm just not going to be racist. Um, they're, they're imploring, they're asking that what we need um, is to be anti-racist. So um, kind of going back to Josiah, when I think about it, he could have said, well, I'm just not going to worship idols, right? Right? you um, could say, well, I'm just not going to do that, um, right? And which, which is kind of our normal response. But he's saying, no, 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 I'm going to be an anti-idol worshiper. I'm going to do what I can to dismantle this whole system for the whole body, for the whole community, for my descendants, right? Um, and for the glory of God, for the word of God um, that lays it out. So I'm, I will have, um, actually have a number of different little handouts um, that Beatrix made very pretty for, for everyone um, but there's one in there um, that is an anti-racist checklist that's, um, I think, very helpful to kind of just go through and to ask questions. Um, there's kind of like just a starter kit um, of uh, just kind of resources on identity and being able to work through that. Um, and then there's one called uh, Whiteness 101. Um, and if And it kind of breaks down kind of some of those definitions. It has a lot of reflection questions. Um, But my favorite thing in the back is if you skip to the little back of the packet, it says 16 tips for white bridge builders. Um, And I think that those are some of the most easy, great, helpful starts um, to get us going. There's also one more. Um, I like resources. is, is about microaggressions. Um, so, microaggressions are everyday verbal and nonverbal things um, that happen that are slights, that are snubs, that are insults, that are unintentional or intentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, and negative messages to target people based solely on their marginalized group. Um, and I think with microaggressions, one of the number one things that we can do to help dismantle a lot of that is just knowing what they are and then knowing how to respond. And so that's what that worksheet is. It's pretty simple, um, first steps to help us. Reconciliation um, requires repentance and action. Um, Intent uh, isn't what is important as much as what is impact, right, so if I step on your foot, I say, sorry, I didn't intend to, right, but I never apologized for it because I didn't recognize that it hurt you, um, it, that's, that it doesn't matter, right? That's not reconciliation. So, it, so intent versus impact. We have to think about maybe I didn't intend to do that thing, um, but, but rather move us to say, well, what was the impact that it had on that person? And do I need to apologize? So there's an article that says, dear fellow white people, here's what to do when you're called a racist. Um, Sounds like a fun article to read. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) there's um, one little snippet that I thought was really helpful. It says, well, one thing that you can do is use language like this. I didn't realize that that remark was racist. I'm so sorry. Would you be be willing to help me understand where I went wrong? I really want to learn, and I would be really grateful. And then they write, important note, if possible, please ask a white person to explain this to you. Um, wh- one of the first tips there is usually on those things is to try not to use people of color to always educate you. Um, and, and a lot of times, because it can be exhausting, and it's about us all doing our own work. So it says, you're, and they go on to say, you know, we're not owed a direct an explanation. Um, it's easy to feel entitled, um, and it's a f- it may be even offensive to feel like that someone else is putting a boundary on you. Um, but to respect that boundary um, because it can be really hard, hard for them. Um, hmm. Okay. All right. So this is the last thing. This is hopefully getting to the practical stuff. So there is a, there's a concept called cultural competency. Can we say cultural competency? cultural competency? That was more to just wake you up. Um, So cultural competency doesn't mean that you have to know everything about every culture. It doesn't mean that you're competent about every culture. That's not what it means. Um, What it means is that you grow in the ability to successfully negotiate cross-cultural differences in order to come together for a common goal. Um, There's a great quote that says, It's not our differences that divide us. It's our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. So, here are some questions, and there's four different questions, and we're all in different places, and so I recognize um, in spaces like this um, that that we're all in different places, so we have to go at different paces. Got that? Got that? Uh, So, awareness. Um, In what ways am I contributing to inequity? What do I need to change in myself? So the awareness is kind of the examine of deep-seated prejudices and stereotypes that create barriers for being able to learn or to grow. Another um, ways to say it is also to check your implicit biases. Um, what ways am I more judgmental or harsh towards people of color? Um, I think for our, our white uh, brothers and sisters, the, some of it is just to do your own work. Um, Don't expect people of color to be your only source of education about race. Read a book, watch a documentary, Google it. Um, People of color, your your exhortation, do your own work. (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) Understand your history, your story, your people, how it impacts you, how you view yourself. Um, And when you need to take a break, and when you need to say no, it's okay. Um, and to practice self-care. I grew up in a predominantly white community, um, and it took quite a bit of doing my own work, um, and still on that journey, uh, to continue to study, to listen, to allow myself to be in really uncomfortable spaces and conversations, uh, to listen, um, to to say, okay, who am I reading? What am I watching? Um, who are the directors? Who are the writers? Who are the actors? Um, what's the news source I'm doing? Um, what, am I reading another um, theologian who's a white man? Oh, wait, I need to, like, diversitize. So I, I have to continue to catch myself um, to be able to put my place, myself in those places as a learner. Um, we're all in it, and we're all doing our own work. Attitude. Am I open to differing views and opinions? We react emotionally when our cultural values and beliefs collide with cultural differences. Individualistic or communal, and Mark and I struggle with that sometimes as a biracial couple. Um, My culture is very communal. Um, Mark's culture is very individualistic. Direct, indirect communication. and, and I think one of our takeaways is to follow up on our assumptions. Um, sometimes we, we walk away with a conversation and we're like, whoa, what just happened there? Or like, did I hear that? Right? Um, and if we don't follow up on the assumptions, it can burn into our own resentment and bitterness and poison um, and hatred and more um, racism, actually. Um, so I would, I would encourage us to follow up on our assumptions to clarify and understand. It's not a place that you go back to try to teach that person of color or to defend yourself, but to really go and try to understand and learn and to get closer. We have to ask um, for our white brothers and sisters, when it comes to conversations about race, do we jump to blame the person of color um, for what they're saying? And people of color, when you are blamed uh, for someone being argumentative about race, um, again, take a break. <laughs> take care of yourself and, and know that you can speak up um, with love and kindness. Knowledge. What do I need to understand about others? What do I need to know about history and systems of oppression? The more knowledge we have about different cultures, the more likely we're going to have more positive cross cultural interactions. Mind blown. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that um, skills I want to I hang here for a second what can I do to honor differences um, we can have awareness attitude and knowledge but if we lack the actual skills to manage those differences um, I think we uh, fall short often so I'm going to just focus on three real particular ones. Mark was challenging me a lot. He's like, we need actual tools. We need something really tangible. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. So one is colorblindness. And we've talked about this. You saw it in the video. Um, So I don't need to say a whole lot about that. Um, But colorblindness is saying I don't see race. Um, uh, There is no such thing as racism. Uh, It's saying we're all the same. We're just all human beings. Um, All Lives Matter, Um, it's saying, when you say, I don't see race or I don't see color, it's saying, I don't see you. I don't see your oppression. I don't see your reality. It derails and it dismisses. So I was reading this article, it says, if you said, I'm sad because my grandpa died, and then someone says, there's no such thing as death. (laughs) Or if they said, hey, I'm having a really bad day, and then someone says, there's no such thing as bad you said, that guy just stole my car. There's no such thing as car ownership. (laughs) So, did you guys get the picture? So anyways, we can move on. Um, The second one is tone policing. Um, You're too angry about this. I can hear it from another person of color who's maybe more gentle um, or less passionate. Um, I can hear it from a white person uh, when they don't talk about it and it doesn't get too personal. Tone policing is focusing on the emotion of the message rather than the message itself. It discredits anyone who doesn't make the effort to be nice about the fact that they're being oppressed. Anger in itself is not a sin, but it is a sin when we lash out and we hurt and harm one another. When we categorize people or people of groups, that's when it becomes a sin. I could say, hey, I'm really angry that another black woman died innocently yesterday. That is a healthy anger. It is different when you say, well, all police officers are all horrible people and they don't do anything to serve and protect. That's, that's harmful, right? When we consider how painful racism is, both historically and systemically, and in the daily lives of black and brown people, to tell them to calm down and not be angry about the issues of their oppression is like saying to Josiah, don't tear your robe. It's more supportive to just listen and understand that our emotions make sense given the circumstances. And the last short one is um, the exception rule is the exception rule is, well, I know the exception when someone's talking about race, especially a person of color. My black friend said the existence to exception, the exception rule is that it's just a reason to dismiss people's experiences. Um, Doesn't mean that every white person has one experience. It also doesn't mean that every single person of color had every experience but you can listen to the person that's right in front of you or the story you're listening to, and believe it and validate it, and weep and tear your robe. And some of you guys are here, action and advocacy. What do we need to do to institutionalize change, the antism work that leads to organizational change and practices and policies? Friends, this is some heavy and hard stuff. It is really uncomfortable, um, and I get that. Uh, this week, we went to the Columbia Gorge, my favorite time of year to go Columbia Gorge because the leaves all change color. But y'all don't know, I grew up in Texas. So all I know is green and brown. That's, that's the only color that trees are, green and brown. That's all I know. Until I moved to Oregon, and then all of a sudden, there was, these leaves were mustard and crimson, and mauve, and pumpkin yellow. And I and I just couldn't imagine that God had made something so much more different than just my experience. And there was something in autumn, which was just like summer in Texas, that just continued on, but that autumn now has a special place in my heart um, that I love. Um, so much of the fruit that we get out of being multi-ethnic and being anti-racist is, is it blesses us. It, it, it enlarges our worship. It enlarges our understanding of God. Um, and, and it leaves a legacy. Uh, it glorifies God. If that's not an enough of a, of a reason, it glorifies God. Disciples at Pentecost were first called to be language learners not it wasn't pentecost came and then everyone learned Hebrew and Greek we the disciples were not all then everybody had to conform to their system and their norm and their dominant culture the pentecost that calls out this mission to bear good fruit in the world for Jesus was for the disciples to become language learners to go out to gather all that God, all who many God wants. But it will take us denying ourselves and picking up our cross and following a Jesus who went to a cross but rose again. <laughs> right? The opportunity next Sunday to come. Uh, back for immigrant refugee Sunday. Um, If you just want to worship and learn more, gosh, man, this is such a great service to come. We did mention that there are shirts um, for sale, but we also know that um, that's not affordable for everyone. So if you just want to wear a black shirt, go for it. But hey, if you don't want to do that, there's going to be other people not doing it too. So (laughs) everyone just come as you are. Um, There is no judgment. and, and just come and learn um, and listen. And Pastor Joel from uh, Access Covenant Church will be here. Um, another opportunity for us as a community to continue to grow and learn is that there will be an Indigenous People Sunday. Uh, Lenore Three Stars, who is a covenant uh, indigenous theologian, will be coming to uh, preach uh, and give us God's word from an indigenous perspective. And then that same week, uh, Thanksgiving Eve, we'll have a multi-ethnic service, Eve service, uh, and Pie Social with uh, Portland Covenant, formerly known as Irvington Covenant, um, and Access Covenant, which is a Spanish bilingual church. Um, and I, I believe that they're going to have um, Alonzo's uh, mother-in-law who leads the choir, uh, leading the music. So it's such a great opportunity um, to actually be with one another, but to know that um, the food and the, and the feelings and the um, even the, the music and those things, those are great and those are wonderful and that's, but that's the surface of, of culture that's just getting to what we're getting at here is kind of those deeper things um, and so I pray that we continue to have courage and again you know, if, if there's some things that you're like, I don't know what she just I don't know about that, come talk to me um, and, and let's, let's talk about it and let's listen and learn together So I'd like to invite the worship team up as I pray. Lord Jesus, um, you left us a legacy with your word, with your gospel, that you are the God um, who wants to be glorified in all the nations. And God, we recognize that it's not about us. It's about your glory. It's about knowing your word, to love you and to love our neighbors and the most vulnerable. But God, it is also about us. It's about the time and place and the mission that you have given us with these people in this place and our call to be faithful to you. So I pray that we would leave a good legacy for the children and youth that right now are about 50% kids of color in our church. The people that will walk into our doors who are brown and black skin, for the generations to come. Not so that West Hills would have a great legacy, God, but Lord, that you would. Help us to be good ambassadors for your reconciliation and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.